It cannot have escaped your notice that our nation has entered into the midst of its national pastime. I am not, of course, speaking of baseball or even of the NFL, which, hallelujah, is back, but about politics. The great passion of the American people, known the world over, is politics. Many of you have been bathed in red or blue in recent days. You've had a chance to watch the conventions. How many of you have tuned in to at least a little bit of some convention? And you have heard the soaring hopes that are being declared there by each of the major parties of the country. You'll have perhaps seen that the magazines are now minutely dissecting the campaign strategies of each of the, of the two candidates. You'll have noticed that the blogosphere is buzzing The talk shows are rattling with all kinds of observations, criticizing or advancing particular pieces of the platform or the policy positions of the various candidates. And in short order, we'll have the two of them facing off against each other in debates. We'll have a chance to hear how each of them thinks and speaks on their feet and which of these uh, two very dedicated men uh, seems to be most presidential, the one who can lead us into the future. Now, what you will not hear, perhaps often enough, is what I call the elephant in the room. Amidst all of the discussion of the candidates and the campaigns and the platforms and the policies, we will hear too seldom, perhaps, a reference to what is the larger, weightier issue. And by elephant in the room, I'm not speaking of the GOP mascot, uh, but simply something big and weighty that deserves our attention. I'm speaking of the issue of our fundamental national unity. Unity is different, of course, than unanimity. We are never going to be unanimous. We are a nation of diverse interests and tastes, but we can find together a common cause. We can find a purpose that joins us, and we're at our best when we do. The challenge, however, is that whichever candidate is elected in November is going to find themselves trying to lead a Congress that is now so bitterly divided it is questionably even governable. We are losing, as a nation, a capacity to come together even around common things, to compromise in the ways that politics has always required compromise to solve the problems of today or to seize the potential of tomorrow. Both red and blue, conservatives and liberals, have got something essential to say. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that no one party has a corner on the kingdom of God agenda, that that both of the voices are, in a sense, needed to draw us to the breadth of concerns that matter to God. But from our capital to our water coolers today, even to the coffee tables of our homes, we are losing, I think, the ability to really listen to people of different viewpoints. We're losing the capacity to really share in a civil way our own viewpoint. We're losing the ability to work together constructively, which brings to mind the great warning of Jesus in our text for this morning. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself 
will not stand. Now, Jesus spoke those words to describe the unity of his work in the life of a madman. He used those words to describe the self-destructive madness that had overtaken the life of a particular man, made him mute and blind, whom he then proceeded to heal. But the import of those words for you and me, the import of those words for those who share our households and our cities and our churches and indeed this kingdom we love and call America, the import of this message deserves our attention. I believe we are living through a period, a season of national madness. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that naively. I'm a student of history a little bit. You are too. But I believe the season we're in is distinctly different from ones that have preceded us, at least in recent memory. And that this topic needs the attention of Christians, as it does of every other citizen of these United States. Some, I know, are already thinking you're going overboard. Some of you are already thinking, come on, it was always like this. It's, it's always like this. It brings to mind the very famous observation of humorist Finley Dunn, who famously observed in the Chicago Evening Post in 1895 that politics ain't beanbag. You got to remember that, he said. Politics ain't beanbag. It's not a game for, the chil- for children. It's not for the faint of heart. By its very nature, politics is an adversarial process. Dunn's remarks have often been used by political cognoscenti to justify the rough and tumble nature of the American political game. And there's some truth in it. Even Jesus himself spoke harshly, boldly, stridently, uh, to his opponents at moments. There was, there's a, an encounter in the scriptures that describe him actually overturning the tables of people that he felt were leading the nation astray. Political campaigns have always been boxing matches of sorts. And, and part of the way we test our candidates, those who are able to lead, is to see how they handle themselves under pressure. But here's what concerns me. Here's what I think is fundamentally different. Nowadays, we rarely manage to leave the boxing ring. This this pugnacious, combative spirit is no longer confined to the period of a campaign. It's becoming our national way of life. And it was not always this way. Some of you are aware that Amy and I moved to this beautiful land back in 1997 from the miserable climactic conditions of San Diego. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. We lived in a, a community that was a very popular resort town and had many lovely vacation homes. And one of the people that lived in that community had a vacation home there, was uh, Lloyd Benson, uh, who had been a four-term senator from the great state of Texas, a Democrat, and who had been the U.S. Treasury Secretary for two years during the Clinton administration. I was out for lunch one day at a restaurant. Actually, it was the one where the 
committee that recruited us first took us to lunch. I happened to be passing by a table at which the senator was seated, and I just thought, what the heck, I'm going to say hello. So I stopped at the table, I reached out my hand, I introduced myself. Hi, I'm Dan Meyer, I'm a local pastor here, Senator. It's just so good to meet you. Thank you for serving our country. And he responded to me a little bit diffidently, with a little bit of that kind of cordial distance that um, very public people have when they're being interrupted in what's supposed to be a very private moment. And I started to back away and extricate myself. But I thought, what? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say one thing more. And I said, Senator, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> I said, did you ever happen to know my great uncle, Peter Dominic? And my uncle, Peter Dominic, had been United States Senator from the great state of Colorado. And the head of the Senatorial National um, Republican Committee. And at the mention of his name, the senator's face visibly brightened. And he said, Peter, Dominic was your great uncle? I said, yes, sir, he was. And he said, I, he was one of my best friends. Oh, Pete and I went way back. We had all kinds of time. In fact, my wife still keeps in touch with your Aunt Nancy. Did you know that? And I said, I didn't know that. They said, oh, we had great times together. Oh, we fought it out sometimes. We would bang heads on the floor of the Senate sometimes. We'd bat, we came at it from different angles at moments, but we would go out afterwards. We'd tip back a beverage. We'd talk about each other's families. We'd agree on the things we agreed on. And we'd talk about how we could pursue common goals together. His eyes were smiling as he remembered those days. And then... His eyes saddened as he said, but things now are really changing. How right he was. It was the early 1990s, and things were really changing in politics. Beginning in the early 1990s, the leaders of the major political parties in Washington issued instructions that there was not to be so much cross-party fraternizing as was going on. Up to that time, the left and the right uh, shared a lot of life together in the way that the senator that I was speaking with described. But now, less and less, were parties getting together. In fact, today, if you go to D.C., there are Red bars and blue bars. They're Democratic and Republican hangouts, and the staffs don't intermingle. There's not the cross-pollination that existed at that time. Ultimately, without those regular social contacts, it became much more easy to start to demonize your opponent because you didn't know them. It became easier to become self-sealed in your own particular vantage point without the perspective that conversation in that informal, relaxed kind of context provided. Ultimately, opposition research began to surge during this particular time. Organizations that, that, that whose special function was to dig up as much detail on the dirt in somebody's past history or some line they had said in some context or some vote they had made in some uh, arena to take that, pull it up, and make it available for attack ads 
I know this because my brother-in-law was one of those opposition researchers. I know what his job was. It was to find the worst things he could that could be cast in a particular way to make somebody else look like a criminal in office or a fool or a hypocrite. And those attack ads in the 1990s, which had occasionally been a feature of political life in the past, took on a new vehemence and a new frequency till today they are regarded regarded as an absolute political necessity. You want to stay in office? You want to get in office? You've got to go negative. You've got to pull down your opponent. As one congressman recently put it, this is not a collegial body anymore. It's more like gang behavior. Members walk into the chamber full of hatred. For a long time, this increasingly polarized uh, violence was mainly confined to Washington. For a a long time, it it was the province of the Beltway and of partisan zealots in particular parts of the country, but but political scientists in their research were consistently claiming that that, that, that the most heated part of the culture wars was an inside the beltway phenomenon. Research showed that the average American was reasonably moderate. They held some conservative views, they held held some more progressive views, but the general nature of things was that was moderation, willingness to compromise, common sense on thorny, difficult, complex problems. In the last decade, however, the number of people identifying themselves as centrists has steadily declined. And the number of people identifying themselves as at the extremes of the political spectrum has steadily climbed. Now, a lot of that shift has been spurred by other changes in the society, I believe. The influence of PACs, political action committees, or special interest groups that grew dramatically over the last several decades. Fueled by the prosperity of the late 80s and the 90s. You remember the glory days? Remember when money was flowing freely? Fueled by that that money, these organizations swelled their marketing budgets and their staff budgets. Suddenly our mailboxes and our email boxes were being filled with these amazing letters. These organizations were decrying the utter depravity of the other side. It was absolutely certain to me as I read the letters that the sky was going to fall in if I did not immediately write out a check and send it in so they could continue their valiant campaign against all this evil that was going to destroy our country if I did not act now. And these letters were coming from the left and from the right. The more mail there was, the harsher the rhetoric had to be to keep us reading it. You've read this. You're getting this stuff, right? We all get it. And as money became tight in the past decade, the appeals had to get shriller in order to generate the funds to maintain the overhead to keep the momentum of all of these organizations. But nothing so pushed us towards polarization as the advent and the explosion of cable television. How many of you can remember the days when there were just a handful of channels on TV? And how when 11 o'clock or midnight came and you turned to them, you got this merciful boo so you could go to sleep. 
so you could get a rest, a break. Suddenly, hundreds of stations are available to us. And and if you know anything about the television or radio business, you know that when you are up against not just a few networks, but against hundreds of other broadcasters, you're in a dogfight for advertisers. And to get advertisers, you've got to have what? Market share. And to get market share, you have to have compelling hot content. And to fill a 24-hour cycle, because it's on all night long too, you've got to have a lot of that content, a whole lot of it. Well, the dirt and the diatribes that were being dished out by the partisan machines in this particular time, and I have to tell you, it's not all accurate stuff. I've worked in a variety of campaigns. I'm kind of ashamed to say what sometimes gets peddled is not all accurate stuff about the character or even the conduct of the other party or the other person. But the stuff that was being dished out was like manna from heaven for, 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 the, for the cable and the, and the radio talk show universe. Uh, because because these, this material gave the rating boost that people needed. It was almost as good as the sex violence and and, and celebrity that they were seeing on other shows. In fact, sometimes politics was about sex and violence and celebrity, it seemed. And gradually, what had been relatively independent journalism, again, can you remember a time when you could read a newspaper or a magazine and not know whether this writer was Democratic or Republican? I mean, we've always had papers or that leaned a little this way or leaned this, this way, but gradually they became ideological tools uh, in, in the marketplace of the ideas of our time. And, and neither the commentators of the left or of the right were even close to fair and balanced anymore, no matter what they were telling us. And they existed to fortify and to incite a particular political base. Now, some of you by now are wondering, why is he telling us all this? Martha, I thought we came to church this morning. It sounds like a political science lesson. Why are we talking about this? Because God loves the people of this nation. And the purpose of this nation as he loves other nations. And God longs for his people, the church, to be a very distinctive force and influence and blessing in the midst of this nation. And Jesus once said that to be effective disciples, we needed to have two things. One, discernment. We needed to, to, to be astute in reading our times so we could bring the proper wisdom and behavior to our times. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, said Jesus once. Interpret the signs of the times. Notice what's going on around you. And read from that what I may be wanting to do. 
Jesus warned his disciples, secondly, that they needed to be very careful not to get absorbed by the culture, not to take on all of the culture's ways and methodologies and strategies. In fact, he said, you are supposed to be a positive, preserving influence within that culture. You are the salt of the earth, he said. But if the salt loses its saltiness, I mean, if it becomes just like everyone else in the way we talk and the way we act and the way we get our, 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 our stuff done, our, our causes advance, if we become just like everybody else in the way we deport ourselves, then how can we be made salty again? We won't even know what salt looks like anymore. It will no longer be good for anything, says Jesus. I will confess to you that it's getting harder and harder for me and and maybe for a lot of us to not be absorbed, to not be caught up in the wash and, and the conflict as it is today. This whole combative environment in which we're living was bad enough back in the the 80s and the 90s, when things were relatively prosperous, when budgets were balanced in many places, when peace largely prevailed in the places close to us anyway. You remember those days. But it isn't your imagination. Politics, economics, uh, social dynamics have grown dramatically more complicated and much more intense over the past decade and more. Today, Technology and globalism have reorganized things. I mean, it's just changed everything. It has moved markets and capital and workers in all kinds of ways that create immense dislocation and confusion and uncertainty, as well as opportunity. The racial and cultural demography of the United States has indeed gotten a lot more complex, and it's going to become even more so. Everyone and everything is moving faster and faster and faster and faster, and there's more and more volume being stuffed into the the space of every 24-hour cycle. I mean, so many messages and colors and tastes and flavors and options, choices and decisions. It's, It's overwhelming, and it's no wonder in this circumstance, in these times, that we're cracking. We're just cracking emotionally. You know, we, we take out our stress at, at, at the way things are and so easily get caught up in the, the combat mentality that is increasingly becoming the norm. Every election cycle now, the boxing gets bloodier, more extreme, conversations about politics in our families, our churches, our social circles, our tentative or testy affairs at best. I promise you there'll be letters from this sermon. Some of you won't come back. We litmus test each other all the time. We're just paying attention to those particular flag words, those particular tendencies That will give us a clue about whether you are red or blue, whether you are liberal or conservative, whether you are my friend or whether you're my enemy, one of those people bringing this whole place down. And it is leading us to anger and to hyperbole about the other. And at the very time when it is most essential, we find some way to come together and rediscover the common cause that used to be America. We are a nation divided against itself. 
And that does not go anywhere good, says Jesus. Abraham Lincoln agreed in our quote on the cover of your worship folder today. We are never as threatened by the dangers that approach us from without as by the divisions that rise up within. Terrorism is not our greatest enemy. It just isn't. Our greatest enemy is that we will be divided and incapable of relating with ourselves. Now, I happen to think there is good news on the horizon. I I, I really do. Whichever of the candidates happens to get elected, I still think, even if it's not the one that I may vote for, I still think there's good news on the horizon in this regard. In a recent poll, almost 80% of Americans describe the present lack of civility as, I quote, a serious national problem. 80% of Americans see it. In fact, I will just tell you that the younger generation, even two years ago, that was extremely engaged with the political process, all recent studies are saying are giving up on it. They see it as so extremely partisan, so deadlocked, so gridlocked, there's no hope in it anymore. I've seen it in my own house with my own kids who were once just so informed and so interested and so hopeful, just losing the hope. And it comes down to this issue of division and civility. When asked who was responsible for improving civility, 90% of those surveyed pointed not to the candidates, not to the campaigns, not to the media. 90% of the respondents said that the responsibility for really improving the conditions lies with the American public. And I think that's true. I think it's going to be a grassroots revolution. I think it's going to be a mustard seed conspiracy. I think that if, if individual ones of us simply said, we're not doing it this way anymore, I'm going to approach politics differently. Even though I'm, I'm, not going, to, I'm going to disagree with people, I'm going to approach it in a whole different tone and manner than I have in the past. If, if we did this, I think we might be amazed at the groundswell, and and at the shade that might begin to come over this heated time in our history. And that is what I want to think about with you over the next couple of weeks, how we make sense of the madness of our time and live constructively within it. I have touched today on some of the external factors that, you know, just as one observer uh, believes has contributed to the climate uh, that we're in right now. But I am also convinced there's something much deeper going on uh, and that many of these factors are simply heightening our, our internal struggle, uh, the internal thing that's the big problem. I'm convinced that when you set aside the nut jobs and the power-hungry players, and contrary to popular belief, that is not all of us or even most of us. That is not all the political spectrum or all the political candidates or office holders. Many of them, I would say the vast majority, trying to do the right thing. You will still see that the political battles going on today are at their foundation moral struggles. We're We're in a period of moral conflict as a country. And if we're going to make progress as a people, then I think there are several advances that could be helpful. First, we need to develop a better understanding of how human beings 
truly function on moral matters. We think we develop our politics rationally. We think we can convert somebody else's political orientation or shift their vote on a subject by just simply appealing to their rationality. But mostly, we develop our opinions differently. We move through this world intuitively. All of us have deep, set, moral intuitions about what is good and right. And we move through the jungle of life like elephants, in a sense, pursuing that course towards what we believe is right. And our reason and our speech-making and all is like the rider on top of the elephant explaining where the elephant's going anyway, where that intuition is taking us. And I, I, I think that if we could understand more of how that process works, it would help us become more self-aware and appreciative of what's going on in the people around us. Secondly, if we're going to interact with one another more constructively, we need to take a deeper dive into the particular moral values that we really care about, that, that the broad variety of people care about. We're going to look in these coming weeks at six basic moral foundations that you can find emerging out of the scriptures reflected here and present the world over across various cultures and times and geographies. We're going to look at six of those moral uh, foundations and see how they account for the different places people are on the political spectrum today, and maybe that will help us approach one another differently. Finally, I hope we can look together at some of the basic biblical ground rules for Christians operating in a partisan world. If ever there was a time for us to be Jesus followers first, party members second, now is the time. Because our culture needs supernatural help. And the engagement of each of us in stopping this madness. So that's why I want to ask of you just two things today practically and then let you go. Here's the first request. Please come back. Okay? This is not some kind of closeted way of, of ultimately sneaking in and nailing you with a partisan viewpoint. I really want, I'm going to raise more questions than I'll create answers. But I, but I hope that we'll be able to discover together some perspectives that give us a, an understanding of our times that we're not going to get through the news media or through the campaigns themselves. That's the first request. Please come back and be part of this conversation. It's just the month of September. And then secondly, invite everyone else you can to come and be part of that conversation too. It's a mustard seed thing. Even just one person, a family member, a friend, a workmate, a neighbor, invite them to come. We're talking about the madness of our times. Does it ever get to you? You'll say, does you ever wonder about this conflict going on? Come on in. We're going to start thinking about this in a deeper way together at my church. It's important we do this. Because Jesus had said, the stakes are very high. For every kingdom, the wealthiest, the most powerful, one that's been around more than 200 years, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, he said. And every city or household divided against itself cannot possibly 
stand. Please pray with me. Good and wise God, you have so richly blessed the people of this land. You have allowed us a place among the great nations of history. And sensing both the perils and the great potential of this present time, we pray for our country today. We pray for each of the candidates now running for office. We lift before you their families, their co-workers, each person who has any kind of a megaphone through which to proclaim an opinion in our culture, and every citizen whose moral vision and actions play such an important part in shaping the future of this commonwealth. Move into every mind and heart, we pray, by the power of your wisdom and grace. Deepen our humility as your people, but also our insight and our courage. Strengthen our discipline. Expand our compassion and heal this land, Lord. Heal this land that we may be of great use to your purposes for many years to come. And so we offer these prayers and our very selves to you in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said,